week. Walking in, Tutum, first course, Caesar, Ross. Followed by second course, Holding, Filet, Midrayer, Oliver. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing pod. Late night with Chef Truffle Boy and Doug reporting for duty. And tonight we have an amazing guest. And he seems like a fun guy. Doug, introduce our guest chef of the evening, please. A fun guy. Oh, hello, everybody. Vlad out here cracking the jokes early. Gotta love it. Thank you guys for tuning in. Another week, another amazing episode. Today we have Joe Weber. Uh, he is the grower and founder at Four Star Mushrooms, serviced in Chi-Town out of Logan Square. How you doing today, Joe? I'm doing fantastic. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. We really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. Um, so if you kind of want to just jump right into it for our viewers, I don't know, you know, we have viewers from all over. So having a local mushroom guy, I know in parts of Florida is definitely a delicacy. So How'd you kind of decide to uh, get into this game? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I guess it kind of all, it all kind of goes back to uh, when I was a kid, I've always had this really intense curiosity with ecology and wildlife. And we grew up across the street from a forest preserve. So um, I was kind of always in there like finding toads and frogs and stuff and like looking at plants and just curious about all that stuff. And it, um, eventually led me to study landscape architecture, actually, of all things, at University of Illinois uh, for about a year and a half. Um, I was interested in, like, kind of the ecological design aspect of it, and I didn't really find it in that program, actually. Um, so I made the switch over to biology because um, I was trying to, you know, I was curious about a lot of things, and um, I really hadn't, with two years of college, I really hadn't gotten any of the answers that I was looking for. Um, right. And biology started to deliver on some of those. So just like learning about ecosystems and the biggest takeaway for me really was um, this one ecology class that I took. And I learned that agriculture is pretty much the largest cause of habitat loss, soil loss, um, pollution in many cases, um, and a lot of the world. So I was that kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, this like this is the driving force behind like a lot of this, a lot of these bad things that we're seeing occurring right. in the world. Right. Um, and so like this this idea of indoor farming and like controlled environment agriculture really started to speak to me. And then honestly, I listened to a podcast with this guy named Paul Stamets, um, which if anybody's listening that knows about mushrooms a little bit, I'm sure they know about Paul Stamets. He's kind of like the godfather of <laughs> the, the shroom godfather. Maybe. I love it. Yeah. Um, but he just, he like, he showed, he kind of showed, introduced me to them. And I realized that there was like this marriage of like the really interesting things that mushrooms do in the ecosystem. And then the fact that they're, it's actually easier and more beneficial to grow them indoors than it is outdoors. So it was kind of a match made in heaven. And then I was like, all right. Yeah. For, for <laughs> forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know, the idea of a mushroom really in our ecosystem, how you kind of described that it's really sort of like the soil cleanup more or less, right. It's kind of like getting rid of a lot of the toxins and sort of the impurities that grow and then blooming it more or less. Yeah, exactly. They're, 
the best description I've heard of them is the grand recyclers. So there's, there's classes of fungi that are decomposers, like the things that I grow that I'm growing on uh, uh, sawdust and soybean hulls. And so that's, they're called saprophytic fungi and they break down. That's what you'll find growing in, in the woods, like a maitake or an oyster, okay. or lion's mane. Um, they're breaking down material. Then there's another class of fungi that are actually transporting um, nutrients and information between trees, which are mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and then we also have parasitic fungi. I got to shout out my guy, Eric at maggot brain mushrooms. He's growing cordyceps mushrooms, which actually he doesn't do it this way, but they grow off of uh, caterpillars in the oh. wild. So, live, so like live uh, caterpillars? Yeah. So uh, he grows them on, uh, I forget what tech he uses, but uh, yeah, there's there's some strains of cordyceps that grow off of caterpillars. Wow. Um, That's yeah, so a, they, they, do a, they do some pretty interesting things in, in nature. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I love that idea of grand recyclers and, you know, speaking on how we're sort of losing that nobody really thinks about you know how many mushrooms are in an ecosystem i think in you know yosemite national forest but i'm sure it's important for any ecosystem to thrive is to have every aspect and obviously fungi is important recycling waste and materials not wanted absolutely and it like the position that i'm in is kind of interesting because like we're still doing that recycling of, of material, but it happens to be waste material from different industries. So we're taking the soybean hulls, which the farmers are, they don't want those. They want the soybean. And so the soybean hulls get chucked and then we take those and we use them as our nitrogen input. And then same thing with uh, the sawdust, because that's just sawdust that's coming off of a mill. It's not gonna be used for anything. Right. Um, so it's kind of cool to be able to kind of fulfill their duty, but just inside of work. Right. <laughs> and in like a cleaned up, boxed up little manner, a beautiful present of recycling. Um, you know, so speaking that on that a little bit, you, this might necessarily be kind of like an in-depth question, but do you know necessarily, you know, if those soybean holes and the sawdust, you know, wasn't being used by you, is that ending up in water systems? Is that ending up, you know, um, destroying other parts of land and a waste somewhere or? Um, so I think there's a variety of things that, that can be done and are done with a lot of these waste products and like waste products that I could grow off of that are kind of in the same category also include like spent grain from breweries. So like there's a lot of these, these byproducts. Yeah. Byproducts right. that we, we could be growing things off of. And some people that are some farmers that are innovative, like, will use that to like, they'll just start growing mushrooms or they'll use that as an input in their compost. Um, as for what soybean holes are used for besides like they're probably used in animal feed, I would guess. Right. Um, just, yeah. So speaking a little bit on that, you said that, you know, there's different materials to kind of use now. I know me and Vlad are notorious for going through people's Instagrams before we get them on the show. And I noticed that you are growing a strand in a bourbon barrel. Is that correct? So, you know, my brain has me thinking if you used, you know, some of this beer byproduct and maybe some of the mash or, you know, the distillate, 
um, from the beer making process, do you think, you know, it would take on that flavor? Is this kind of the first experiment you've done with like infusing flavor through the recycled product? So that's what I was really, really hoping for. Um, and I don't think that it's, it's going to translate into flavor. Unfortunately, I think it's just kind of a cool story. Right. Um, but when I was, when I was packing up the substrate, the first time that I was, uh, going to pasteurize. So we have to pasteurize the substrate after, um, we hydrate it just to kill anything, uh, before we put the culture in and, before, even before I pasteurized it, I had mixed the spent grain in. So I'm, I'm uh, working with Goose Island on this. Um, okay. They've been giving me the, some of the bourbon barrel chips um, and then also spent grain, which is already pasteurized. So I mixed those two together. Uh, and I got to tell you, the smell on the substrate was just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's... but... So how long is that kind of, you know, how long is that experiment sort of in play for? What are we talking, you know, weeks here or? Yeah. So we did one, we did one batch and that we did one batch, um, which was only about 12 blocks and I've got four more, I've got 48 that I'm about ready to go, um, over the next probably two weeks. So we'll just start to work it up. Um, the reason that I grow on oak and soy hulls is because it grows really fast and it grows really big. Like the yields are pretty substantial. Gotcha. So this is, it's kind of, at least at this scale, it's a little bit more of a novelty. Um, just kind of showing what can be done, you know, and yeah, the, hopefully we'll uh, be able to offer them, um, you know, at some restaurants or, um, maybe even at local foods. We'll see. Yeah. Awesome. And go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Doug, before we get too far, like I'm, I'm super interested in like, so you listen to this podcast, you got, you know, super into, you know, mushrooms and everything about, you know, growing them in that. How did that whole like process begin? Was it like something you started in your, like your bedroom, you did one batch and then, you know, how did it evolve? And like, where were you getting all the knowledge that you needed? You know, that, you know, like, you know, that provides nitrogen that could provide this like that's all you know that's all like recipes right you need you need a certain recipe to or a concoction uh to do that like how did how did that all come about walk me through that like process in your life yeah absolutely so so it really started with that podcast um if anybody wants to listen to it it's jre 1035 i listened to it about 10 times um it's uh so I listened to that podcast probably two or three times that first week and I was just like blown away. Um, and then I got, I got his book mycelium running and I read that. And then I got growing gourmet and medicinal mushrooms. And, and, and if you could like summarize, what are all those books about? Is this just like him doing, you know, a bunch of trials or, you know, what's, does it read like, you know, like a recipe book that, uh, you know, a chef, you know, would buy or, or what is that, what does that material look like? So the first book, Mycelium Running is kind of like, uh, it's an overview. It's like his pot. It's like him on the podcast, but a lot more in depth, um, learning a lot more terms and, uh, and then the growing gourmet medicinal, medicinal mushrooms is more like a recipe book. So it's got like all the different gourmet mushrooms that you might want to grow and then what their conditions are, what they like to grow on, 
um, all that kind of stuff. So those two books kind of gave me like, it helped paint a picture of what was going on. Right, and like the psychology to- of it. And then like, what is actually what it comes yeah. down to. Exactly. Yeah. So, so those, those books and that podcast got me pretty far. Um, and then YouTube, honestly, YouTube university, it's just YouTube university. I love that. <laughs> Seriously. Like I learned because people were willing to share what they have done, mistakes they've made and um, what they've learned. I was able to, I was able to like feel the confidence to start a lease on just a 400 square foot uh, commercial space. Um, I knew that, I knew that I wanted to do this. And so I knew I wanted to make it legit, and, but I had never grown mushrooms. I mean, to be honest, I really didn't even eat mushrooms before this, uh, this podcast. Um, and I can't say that anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, but, uh, wow, what a, what a complete, you know, 360. So what would you say was your mushroom knowledge before this podcast? I mean, did you know like a button cap and a cremini or was it like, baby bella portabella that's it yeah like i knew i knew like cursory stuff like we had i think we had two days in one of my classes where we even touched on like the reproduction of fungi um so like that was like the extent of like my scientific understanding of them like two days of like slides in a physiology course if I got like a B in or a C. Um, and then, yeah, like if we would have them, they just like weren't really a part of my life. It's kind of crazy. And, yeah. And then kind of like overnight, they just became everything. <laughs> well, <laughs> since we're kind of talking about that, like, you know, what, what was your early, like uh, you grew up in uh, Chicago or like, you know, what were your early upbringings? And like, I know yeah, so you were up- interested in like, you know, outdoorsy and you know all that stuff but yeah i grew up uh in hoffman estates so northwest suburbs of uh chicago um i mean interested in sports um but like always had this underlying like strong interest in habitats i would say and like like different organisms that lived in habitats and kind of how they how they meshed um I would always make like little terrariums and stuff and like catch frogs and put them in there. Um, and so like that was when I listened to this podcast, like it really made, it, it kind of brought that to light. I was like, Oh, this is like what I've been wanting to do. Um, and like these things are so interconnected. So it kind of shined a light on that for me. And it just showed me that like, Oh, this is a feasible way to kind of, have an impact on some of the things that I care about. Yeah. So you're in this 400 square foot space. What, what is it needed to, to bring up, you know, that space to, to make it a, a mushroom farm? Um, a lot more than I knew getting started. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, it was, so it kind of, it kind of acted as a proof of concept for me. Like I was like, I don't even know if anybody's going to buy mushrooms for me. Like, seems ridiculous that someone would just buy mushrooms for me if I'm like nobody, you know? Um, and so I did some research. Uh, I talked to some people that were in like distribution and I talked to some chefs that we knew. 
Um, and I got enough validation that I thought that I could go forward with it, but I didn't want to do anything too big because, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so in that first four, and, and you only foot, have 400 square feet. I mean, how much can you really do in 400 square feet? Well, and there were other spaces that were, you know, you could get a lease on 5,000, but 5,000 square feet is pretty terrifying. <laughs> oh, definitely. For your yeah. first run. I think that's like probably a, a perfect, perfect size. I can only imagine the sheer fear of even for me 400 square feet of my own space you know that's it's a it's a commitment yeah i looked i looked at 400 square feet up and down every day <laughs> um but what we did was um so when i ever say we a lot of times i'm talking about my dad he helped me uh do a lot of the construction the building on this um as well as business development um he's started a few businesses and he's just been really great to have there with me and kind of guide me on this entrepreneurial experience. Uh, cause it's, there's a, there's a lot, it's very stressful at times. Um, everything's new. Um, but so, uh, we, we put up a grow room in that space. And so that was like an 11 by 17 foot room with like, uh, FRP walls and shelves where we would, uh, put the mushroom blocks. And I would buy, I would buy all the blocks, get them shipped in from my guy, TR Davis, uh, earth angel mushrooms out in Missouri. And so he would make all the substrate blocks inoculated, grown out, ready to produce a mushroom pretty much. Um, and then I would get those shipped in, store them in a walk-in cooler that we built. Uh, we built this walk-in cooler with a, a window air conditioning unit. And then like this little, uh, controller that tells the air conditioning unit to run continuously. Oh, wow. So this is a, this wasn't, is this like a restaurant walk-in cooler or you literally like put four walls and you put an AC unit and everything. Yeah, we built, we used like metal studs, uh, like big, thick insulation boards, foil tape, like spray foam, just made it airtight. Oh, um, wow. And then you just stick yeah. an air conditioning unit in. You pull the heat, the, the sensor out that tells it when to turn on and you just have a heat probe on that. So it just tricks it. And so, because it's so insulated that air conditioner runs and recirculates, and then it eventually it can get it down to like 32 degrees. It's pretty amazing. Is, is, that, <laughs> what, is that what is needed uh, to grow mushrooms or what's the perfect, you know, growing mushroom temperature? So that's just needed to, to one store the mushrooms after I pick them. And then also to store those blocks. Um, Cause those get shipped in there alive and I need to, I would get like, Prolong a them. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got it. Work them into the production schedule. Um, but the grow room, what's needed for a grow room ideally is cool air. So like you're looking at like 60 degrees and then humidity fluctuating between anywhere from, you know, hundred percent down to 80 or 75 with plenty of oxygen coming in uh, as well as light. So light, I, I was always surprised. I thought mushrooms grew in the dark or they actually grow in the light. Yeah. So, um, a lot of the mushrooms that grow on compost, um, I don't have a ton of experience with this, so I might be getting some of it wrong, but I think a lot of the mushrooms that grow on compost, like, uh, like the little white button mushrooms, those grow in the dark. Um, but all like the gourmet specialty, varieties need at least some threshold of light and some of them need actually quite a bit and it's not to like 
they don't use the light in the like plants do. There's no chlorophyll or anything, but they it's more of a signal. Um, it does help develop color on some species and just gets other ones to grow correctly. Wow. So what was, you know, what was the first batch? What were the first mushrooms that, you know, you kind of went for? So the first ones that I started doing were, and I'm still doing them, uh, were blue oyster, black oyster, lion's mane. And I think that those were the only three that I started with, like the first, you know, maybe three months just to kind of get comfortable because those are, they're forgiving. Um, and everything, I mean, everything just starts to fall apart, especially when you don't know what you're doing. So, um, and that inevitably happened. Uh, but yeah, those were the, those are the three that I started out with. Um, and I stick with them because they're great mushrooms and um, people tend to like them. So you, it's already alive. Do you need to still inject, you know, the spores or the spores are already in there and you just put it in the, in the grow room? Yeah. So, um, I guess I'll start from the top, um, with the, with the ones that I was getting then they were ready to go. So like they're called ready to fruit blocks. They've already grown fully. Uh, all you have to do is cut a hole in the bag and put them in a room that's humid and cool. Um, so the process that I do now is we take a raw material, which is uh, the soybean hulls and oak sawdust, and it's in pellet form. And so we, we put that into a bag, and then we also put water into the bag, and we hydrate that substrate. And then we take the bag, fold it over, and then put it in a pasteurizer. And so we just got these two uh, like galvanized stock tanks, like big agricultural water tanks. Uh, that are flipped upside down and they close on each other and we just pump steam in. Um, so it's not, not quite a pressure cooker, but it kind of resembles one, uh, but gotcha. it doesn't hold pressure or anything. Uh, and that cooks, that cooks the substrate, pasteurizes it, gets rid of like any spores or any resident bacteria in there. And then we take it out, bring it into the lab, which is, pretty much stainless steel, stainless steel table, uh, with a big box. It's called a laminar flow hood. Um, and what that is, is pretty much like a, it's a hospital grade filter, um, filters out 99.999% of, uh, particles in the air. And we pretty much use that as a clean space to then take what's called spawn and then put that into the production block. Um, so spawn is pretty much, spawn is the mycelium. Uh, the mycelium is the organism. The mushroom is the reproductive aspect of the organism. And then the spores are, uh, they're essentially like sperm and egg. Um, and so you need this, the spores to germinate. So the spores, the mycelium is on the grain and then we take that grain and we put it in the, uh, in the production block to act as, um, distribution throughout that substrate. And then it grows from there. So is the type of mushroom determined by the mycelium and the spore or the combination of them kind of creates the type of mushroom? So it's just, uh, the, the culture. So you can think of each different mushroom as like, a different variety of apple almost almost gotcha. um so like when the, the the tree is 
similar to the mycelium. The mycelium is growing and eating and making decisions and living. And then at some point I bring it into a room and do something to it that makes it think that it's time to, it's a good time to reproduce essentially. So gotcha. that what we do there is we bring it into a room that's cooler and more humid with more oxygen. And then we cut a hole in the bag and that that's where the mushroom starts to grow out of. Um, and do you make multiple holes in the bag or is this like one, one hole, one uh, kind of giant mushroom cell thingy? Yeah, it kind of depends. And it's always something that I'm playing with. Um, each variety is a little bit different. So like oysters, it's best to do just like a little X on the side and they'll, they'll just come out from there and push the plastic. Uh, lion's man, I like to do a, like just one narrow slit or one diagonal. Um, my Taki and King oysters will do, uh, we'll actually cut the top of the bag off and fruit them from like the, the space between the substrate and the top of the bag. Cause there's an airspace. Um, so it really depends. <laughs> and that's just for these mushrooms. Like there's tons of different ways to grow them and grow different mushrooms and you can do them in trays. You can do them on logs. There's a lot of different options. So not to get too off topic, but again, going back to us kind of looking through your Instagram, I see these, you know, take home grow bags. And so obviously, you know, they pique the interest. Um, you know, what someone who's trying to do this on their own and kind of getting into it and might have some of the similar interests that you do, you know, these take home bags, how does that work? Do they have to sort of create this environment within their house, this very humid, very cold atmosphere? Yeah. So um, I don't personally do the, like the grow at home or take home kits. Um, I can definitely refer people to some great companies that do. Um, but what, what those people are going to be looking for mainly is um, it's not going to be like the, the biggest yield or the prettiest mushrooms. Right. But if you, if you um, maybe make like a little humidity tent, you spray it a few times a day, especially as the mushrooms are just starting to form. That's really key. It's called primordia when they first start to like bump up from the mycelium um, to keep those really moist and keep that, um, that whole area from not drying out. You'll have a lot more success going forward. Um, cause once they get past that stage, they're less, they're more resilient and, um, then they can almost just kind of grow in open air. Like lion's mane, especially they can pretty much just grow on your countertop. Yeah. That's something I want to try now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. I just think this is such an interesting conversation and not only about, you know, fungi as a sustainability aspect, but also I think we have such a responsibility as chefs to be more sustainable in our sourcing practices and our buying and our purchasing. And we always want to, you know, um, you know, source local, source local, but I can find even here in Florida that just because it's local doesn't always mean that it's the most sustainable practice. And that just because, you know, it's coming from down the street doesn't always mean that they're the most ethical when they're sourcing their products. So mm -hmm. I just love that we're kind of hitting on this and you're able to sort of bring this full circle for a lot of our viewers and chefs. And I'm sure that they feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll be completely honest. There's a long way to go too. like, 
I use a lot of plastic and it's a shame and I don't want to. Um, but that's like kind of just the standard right now for growing these types of mushrooms. And I mean, I, I work, I'm working towards something that we can, we can get away from just all single use plastic. I know a lot of growers probably say that, but, uh, we have to, because, you know, an industry is, it's, it's very hard to achieve true sustainability. Um, yeah. And anybody that claims that they are, I would question, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good regenerative farms out there that are making an impact. Um, but there's a, definitely a long way to go. <laughs> for sure. There, there definitely is. And I think I'm hopeful that, you know, my generation in the culinary industry will keep pushing this sort of trigger word. I mean, sustainability is so talked about right now. And I hope that, we stay on this path and it's not a, you know, I think farm to table, you know, five years ago, people thought it was just going to be a fad. Um, but I think we're really pushing the boundary and showing that it's here to stay that, you know, we do need to make better choices. Well, and isn't COVID-19 like a perfect example of that? You know, like COVID was so, was and is so interesting because it like exposed a lot of vulnerabilities, I think. Um, Obviously, the restaurant industry got hit the hardest, um, but I think food in general, people just started to realize like, one, the supermarket isn't just like, the food doesn't just appear there. Um, and two, like a lot of people at least probably more realized, should have realized that like, if you're eating junk, you're, you can get sick, you know, you can get really, really sick and you can go to the hospital and it's no joke, you know, and a lot of that yeah. has to do with people's uh, food choices. Um, so I think the industry is, it's, it got hit hard, but like it's changed forever. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens even in the next coming months, but definitely in the next few years. Yeah. And I mean, so we can speak on that a little bit, you know, what, yeah. where were you at, you know, how many years in business were you or, you know, what that sort of process looked like for you as a, you know, a specialty dealer in mushrooms in Chicago. Yeah. So I was about six months in starting to get cocky, thought that I knew uh, what I was doing, you know? Um, yeah. I remember it was that Sunday. It was that Sunday, like right before or after St. Patrick's day um, that the whole city shut down. And like, I remember on Monday, just, I, I had like worked pretty hard to get some standing orders. Like, at the time, like 40 pounds a week was like a pretty significant order. Um, and I had that with RPM Italian it was going great. And then like <laughs> Monday morning, I just got a tech or I just got like an email, like, Hey, we got to hold off. And like, then everybody else followed. Um, so it was kind of, it was definitely tough. Um, I was in a good position in that I was small, you know, I didn't have 500 pounds of mushrooms that I was going to be producing, even if nobody was going to buy them, you know, I only had right. 75, maybe a hundred. Um, but I kept growing. Um, I, I gave, I just like kept growing. I gave away a bunch of mushrooms to like people that had lost their jobs, mainly in the restaurant industry, but really anybody, um, just to get them some food. And because I had it, nobody was buying it. <laughs> Um, so that was great. It was nice to like kind of connect with people during that time too, because we were also isolated. 
Yeah. Um, it's definitely interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a uh, you know what a treat. You lost your job, but here's some blue oysters. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, no, but not to make light of the situation. I'm sure it was very scary for you and for a lot of those chefs. Did you kind of have a backup plan? Did you start selling to chefs who were doing private gigs in the city? Yeah, so I kind of just went like gorilla mode, like just selling to whoever wanted them, dropping them off. Um, I definitely cut back my production. I started to uh, play around with some different stuff. I mean, I knew, I knew after a while, I knew it wasn't going to last forever, um, and I knew that at some point we would be getting going again. So, like, I had some hope, um, and I had enough materials and cash to kind of just like hang on. Um, And that gave me time. It kind of gave me some downtime, like away from just like trying to produce as many mushrooms as possible to like learn how to make spawn, you know, like learn how to do medicinal mushroom extracts, like doing some different things that, um, you know, I don't have as much time for now, but the fact that I know how to do them because of them is starting to pay dividends. That was such, I remember that being such a topic of conversation back in April is, you know, what you do at this downtime is going to wean heavily on the future. And so I remember trying to like read and stay in touch as much as I could. And like, whenever we did go out, I would try and get like a new plant-based, you know, I would experimenting with jackfruit and celery root and all these different things. And, you know, plant-based cooking is something that I try to always expand and always learn on because I think it's going to be the future, but being able to use those, you know, six months where I didn't have a job um, to try and do something in the industry, like you said, to try and stay connected in some regard, um, Mm. I think was very important and it definitely is paying off now. Yeah. And I think, I agree. I think that, uh, I think there's a place for good meat, but there's so many different plants and there's so many different, like, it's just so like, I'm always amazed, like walking to like a new supermarket. Like I was in H Mart the other week and, uh, you know, just like coming across like new vegetables and stuff. Um, plant-based movement, I think is very cool. There's a lot of potential there as long as it's, it's done sustainably, you know? Yeah, exactly. It won't do us any good if, you know, our carbon input is just the same as harvesting all this beef when we're tearing up, you know, acres and acres of land. So I agree. It's exactly right. I think it's more on, you know, the the big countries that are using a lot, because if you look at, you know, other cultures, they're pretty much plant based as is because they can't afford, you know, meat products. So Mm -hmm. it's it's more on like, you know, our choices that we make. But in terms of sustainability, I think that that word uh, definitely gets thrown around a lot, even though it doesn't hold much, you know, much weight or much claims. And especially, you know, these big organizations and maybe they're conspiracies, but, you know, these documentaries that are coming out about like all these sustainable practices that are not really sustainable and that word, you know, gets slapped on a label and makes, you know, us happy, I guess, us younger generation, but it's all about trying to, you know, do your best and and having that knowledge. Right. So I guess in terms of your, uh, kind of getting back into the story, but, um, 
you know, how did you begin all those, you know, extracts and uh, what are you kind of doing now in terms of, you know, what are you growing and, and what are you doing with your time? Yeah. So, um, extra, like, like a lot of this stuff, extracts I learned just from reading stuff online, you know, trying to put together what other people had done and see if it made sense, kind of see what the products that were offered. And a lot of, like a ton of the medicinal mushroom uh, products that are offered right now that I've seen are, they're just mushroom powder, which is actually nothing um, effectively. I mean, it's not digestible. So I'm just kind of curious about like the medicinal properties in mushrooms and like learning more about those. And then also, you know, actually doing extractions, like high quality extractions. I'm not that interested in doing an extraction that doesn't really do anything, you know, like could sell powdered mushrooms or powdered mycelium, which a lot of companies do, but. Um, and why is that? Like, why is that not effective? Is that just like, you know, dead cells at that point once they've been kind of dehydrated or yeah, dehydrated? Yeah. So like all the stuff, like polysaccharides are a big thing that um, mushrooms are known for in terms of health benefits. And uh, pretty much all the things that are inside of the cell are stuck behind the cell, right? So if you don't actitually break down that cell wall, which is made of chitin, and chitin is really, really tough, and we can't really digest it. Um, you, so like, and there's only a few ways to really break that down, cooking being one of them, uh, doing a, a hot alcohol or a hot water extraction are the two most common. And so that's what I've actually got right here. Um, just started to do some more batches of lion's mane extract. And that's a dual extract. So we do, um, I'll take organic cane alcohol and hot water. And we'll do two different extraction processes and just pour this hot alcohol and hot water continuously over uh, uh, this lion's mane, dried lion's mane. That, what that does, it pulls out all the water soluble and alcohol soluble compounds um so polysaccharides and then, so like all the fats right isn't that what it's pulling yeah so that that would be the case for like something like uh cbd or cannabis but there's not that much fat in mushrooms um so it's, it's a lot of poly polysaccharides triterpenoids um the the polysaccharides are the biggest thing for the immune system function, um, the immunomodulation, uh, also anti-inflammation. Uh, and then the alcohol-soluble stuff, at least in lion's mane, um, it, they're called hericinones and erinaceans. And those are really small and thought to be able to pass through the blood-brain barrier and then actually increase the brain's ability to secrete something called nerve growth factor or brain derived neurotrophic factor. So and just like more, more webs in your brain. Yeah. You know, like that meme where uh, it's like the four pictures and the guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> oh, I love it. Wow. That is quite interesting. Thank you for divulging us that, you know, lesson i think it's so important you know people can say oh this is good for you or that's good for you or this is going to help you with that but to actually know the reason behind it you know mm -hmm. like you said you can have the mushroom powder but 
the chemicals and the cells that actually do the good haven't even been broken down fully to you're just digesting, you know, nothing. You're not getting the effect that you've paid for. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I still struggle with what's the, you know, what's the best way to do it and what gives you the most uh, bioavailability. And, you know, I'm, I'm in on this, you know, if it's a consumer, it's easy enough to just buy the mushroom powder and think it's doing something. Right. Exactly. Sure. Do you, uh, you know, you're obviously taking it, but do you like feel the, you know, like you're biohacking your brain into being more productive or, or being able to do that? Yeah. So the thing about like the medicinal mushrooms is um, when you start to notice it is when you stop using it. So it's one of those things that you should take continually. Um, and then like, if you, if you drop off for, if you take it for three months, you drop off for a week, you'll probably start to notice it. Um, so I take the lion's mane just for, just to kind of clear my head and stay sharp. Um, also, like I said, the polysaccharides, then I also take, uh, cordyceps from, uh, maggot brain mushrooms and cordyceps is a really interesting mushroom because it's one of the only foods, like one of the only five foods, I think that can increase your VO2 max which is your body, your, your body's ability to take in oxygen in the blood. So like it pretty much just gives you higher fitness. Like you'd be able to run a little bit faster if you took this versus if you didn't, um, which I think is super interesting. And then in terms of like all these extractions, like, you know, what's the volume, what volume are we talking about that is actually coming down into this liquid? You know, what mass is getting, you know, because you have to grow that, then dehydrate it, and then, you know, extract it. How, how much is, like, really going into a bottle? Yeah, so we've got, uh, with a dehydrator, you lose about 90% of the weight. So you're at about 10% from there. Um, but most of the weight is water. So, like, 80, like you're down to 10% of the weight, but you're much more concentrated in the compounds that are in the mushroom. And so then you take that, you grind it to start to process it. Um, and then we'll put that in a th what's called a thimble. And the thimble holds about 125 dried grams, maybe 120 dried grams. Um, and I'll run three thimbles. So like a few hundred grams of dried mushrooms per, um, what ends up being one, uh, 1000 milliliters. And that comes out to about 15 or 16 tinctures. Um, so but the, the interesting thing is, is maybe not as much, um, the, the amount that goes, the dry amount that goes in is the, the color change in the solution. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, is we're boiling off. We've got a flask and then we're boiling it. And so it goes up and then it hits this, Thing that's got cold water it's called a condenser and it condenses that alcohol or water back down over the material and so eventually this material and the thimble fills up with this hot like pure either water or alcohol and then there's a siphon so it gets to the top and then the siphon drains the whole thing and so you can literally see the the material lose color and then the flask start to gain this color 
So doing this over three days is typical is typically my process. Um, and by the third, by even by the second day, end of the first day, you can't even see through the solution. So like you can totally you can see what it's pulling out, and then you can relate that to what we know. And, like, and is there like right. like runs? You know, like how like you know when the when they do like olive oil, um, you know the first you know first liquid that comes out is like super super green. Or is this like vice versa? Um, because we're just reusing the solution, it's just boiling off. Um, we don't really have to worry about that too much. Um, there, there does tend to be some like just dry material that gets, or not dry material, just some uh, actual material that gets siphoned through. Um, and then I just filter that off and keep that out of the tinctures. But even that stuff is not... Uh, completely pasteurized and shit dead yeah. material. I think, uh, I mean, what an interesting concept to be able to make your own tinctures. I, I wonder, you know, when you're speaking on this it sort of sounds like the process of making sake and one of the sakis in Okinawa, um, they actually leave the habu snake in the sake. Mm. It's like supposed to give this different level of, um, medicinal uses for having the snake in there but if you were to leave a little piece of the lion's mane or something like that in the tincture i wonder if people would correlate that i don't know just a marketing idea for you yeah well and i'm kind of trying to uh, move towards this like full spectrum so like i'd like to use i'd like to do a dual extract of both the fruiting body and the pure mycelium because i think there's benefits in that too um and that's, I mean, yeah, I think that that's, that's the, the more that you can incorporate into it, the better, you know? Yeah. I'm just thinking of the story you're telling us and how to incorporate that story. I mean, everyone needs to kind of hear this and understand the level of work and dedication going into this. You know, it's not like you're just taking a, a mushroom and drying it down and then putting it some liquid, letting it sit on the shelf for a week and then draining it out and selling it to people. There's a whole... Mm -hmm breaking down the cells and, you know, really searching for the good out of the product. Yeah. And really trying to, uh, trying to do it effectively, you know, and if I find out that what I'm doing isn't as effective as it could be, then I'll change. Um, yeah. Just trying to make a kick-ass product when it comes down to it. <laughs> yeah. And I really appreciate you being able to share that with us. Um, you know, for anyone who's listening or, you know, in the Chai Town area who wants to check you out, uh, what's a good way to reach you and sort of do you only service a certain part of, you know, Logan Square? Do you kind of go all over Chicago? Yeah. So for, for fresh mushrooms, we typically do most of our sales to restaurants. Um, consumers can find our mushrooms at local foods. Definitely go in, talk to Juan. He's the produce manager over there. Uh, he'll hook you up with some four star mushrooms as for, uh, and so in restaurants also, would love to speak with any restaurants that are interested in carrying mush our mushrooms. Um, as for medicinal, the medicinal mushrooms, uh, I'm taking pre-orders for those, the next batch of those right now. So if anybody's interested, because we can ship these too, um, just shoot an email to joe at fourstarmushrooms.com. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely get back to you and put you on a list and we'll get those made for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
anybody wants to follow on Instagram or even just reach out and shoot me an email and say what's up. And what's what's kind of your current selection as far as you know selling to restaurants in the Chicago area? What are you kind of what are you running right now? You blue oysters, black oysters, lion's mane. Yeah, I've got. I'm looking at some chestnut mushrooms coming in right now. Um, a couple of new types of lion's mane, a lot of blue oysters. Um, as we move into the summer, I think that production schedule is going to be mainly blues, lion's mane, um, some black oysters mixed in there, maitake and chestnut. Um, and then we'll also be doing a lot of reishi. And so reishi is going to start to become uh, one of the big products, I think, in our medicinal line. Nice. And is this something that you will take suggestions for? Is it kind of hard to source the right spores? I mean, if a chef was like, Hey, I want to do oysters or I want to do, you know, chanterelles or trumpets or those things that you can recreate in this environment. So there's a, there's a handful of like we refer to in this industry as like commercial strains, um, strains that grow consistently. They grow strong. They're resistant to contamination. They have decent yields, like, um, and so I, the, I get my spawn from this company out in Maine, Maine Cap and Stem. They're great to work with. If anybody's looking for blocks, uh, they've got killer blocks, uh, killer spawn as well. But uh, so they're the, all the stuff that they have, I, I have access to. Um, but it, it eventually comes down to just making a judgment call, you know, and saying like. I think that these are the ones that are going to sell in this proportion. So gotcha. yeah, as we plan out the summer, um, it's looking like a lot of blues, a lot of, a lot of blues, some lions, some blacks, and then also chestnut my talking and ratio. Beautiful. Yeah. No, and those, first, folks. those oyster mushrooms, I've, I've had a pleasure to work. I believe uh, you were providing for us at GT when you just started. At, yeah. Um, so those were amazing and we had them in our uh, mushroom side dish. So you just saute them with, you know, a little bit of shallots, butter, salt, pepper, and, you know, fried uh, crispy shallots on top and call it a day. And they were amazing. There you go. And the shelf yeah, life on them. I is- came in and had a, I ordered two of those sides actually. <laughs> <laughs> like this are my mushrooms. <laughs> I love it. No, they're, they're so meaty. They're, they're, you know, amazing. And they're so pretty. They're so, you know, usually get like, you know, the, in the gro. well, not to speak down on grocery stores, but usually they're not like fully intact. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you were bringing your boxes, they were just like picture perfect, you know, mushrooms. So, I mean, like not bent or broken. Yeah. And then during, well, that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the benefits of like, of me growing these oyster mushrooms. Like it doesn't really make sense to do shiitake or button mushrooms because they can be shipped, but the oyster mushrooms just get absolutely torn up if you don't take care of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I kind of thought about like a lobster or something like that. But, um, I, I really just, it's, it's impressive. It's very impressive. And I know, uh, Chicago is one of those places where, you know, it's thriving for something like that. Um, there's parts of Florida where you can get something, you know, of the same quality, but it's definitely not everywhere. So uh, it's definitely a delicacy. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's kind of fun because it's this whole like controlled environment industry is like, 
is creating this thing that like, oh, we can grow these specialty foods inside and like have all this control over like what they look like. Cause you know, there's probably 30 different ways you could grow the same type of oyster mushroom to get it to look different ways. Um, and so I think that that's just so exciting. I love it. Well, Joe, me and Truffle Boy, AKA Vlad, just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us tonight and sort of diving into the world of fungi. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. If anybody is listening, hopefully you guys got something out of either fungi growing or sustainability in the industry or just all around how to kind of, you know, might be in a podcast where you find that thing that you're looking for. So, well, on the uh, medicinal value, I'm really into the, yeah. you know, the medicinal value of mushrooms. I think that's been exactly blowing up headlines over headlines, you know, talking about, you know, there's so many products right now that say they, they can make you better, you know, sharper, faster, slimmer, you know, and it's, it's all about like reading that back of the label and being like, okay, well, there's, how's it doing know, it? There's pretty much sugar in this and, and some starch and the rest is just placebo effect, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, really digging into like this whole biohacking world and stuff like people are doing, uh, you know, and using, uh, mushroom extractions and doing all weird kinds of stuff. I'm super interested in that. And it was amazing, you know, to be able to kind of ask you my my questions and my perspectives of you know mushrooms and and just getting that knowledge uh, into the world of how how that's all being being done is has been amazing. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me. I mean, this is this is a blast. I, I loved it. And uh, if you have any questions, seriously, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm on the same page with the medicinals, man. We're gonna definitely going to put more time towards those this year and hopefully have some new products. I mean, I don't want to just do tinctures. I'd love, I love to do like some interesting drinks and maybe powders in the future. So everybody stay tuned. Most definitely. Well, I know me and Vlad will be hitting you up and getting our pre-orders in. So thank you very much, Joe, for spending some time with us. Thank you everybody for tuning in and checking us out again. This is late night with chefs with Mr. Joe Weber out of Logan Square at Four Star Mushrooms. Go check him out and get your orders in, Chef. And we will see you all next week. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe. Awesome. Well, before we let everybody go, I just want to have the most ridiculous question for Joe. Uh, since I am known as Truffle Boy and we kind of spoke pre-podcast uh, and I've, I've, uh, we usually ask, you know, chefs, why 86? Uh, but... For you, I was just interested if, in Love theory, this. I go to Italy, Umbria, or you know, you know, one of those spots, and like dig, you know, take take a root of a tree, and like dig a spot, and like bring that back one here. One square foot of dirt. Like yeah, one square bring foot of dirt <laughs> with with the oak tree. Is there you know is there any possibility of actually growing truffles? Don't crush his dreams or, here, Joe. Or does don't the, crush his dreams. Or does the tree kind of have to be alive? And if you don't know about it, that's it's completely fine as well. If um... so, I think that your best bet would be you. I mean, you'd you'd have to transport a community of trees. Is the thing you need, um, you need a couple square feet, Vlad. Okay, got it. <laughs> so there's actually there's an amazing book. Um, that I've just started to get into that's called how trees, how trees talk or how trees communicate. I forget. I'm botching the name, but, uh, 
it goes into like like how like these trees can be you know in old old growth intact forests or orchards these trees can be centuries old um and they're alive and they're talking to each other they're sharing nutrients they're communicating um and the truffles are a result of all of that so unless you have like i think it's going to be difficult for north american growers to create truffle orchards um unless they're committed to centuries um which is something that wow it's hard to hear but it just yeah. shows that we should maintain the ones that we have you know no yeah that's definitely uh and i think <laughs> so i think it really you do. does get, get your square get, feet and you know, write yourself a time capsule it's okay it's okay uh but uh, on that topic of uh you know truffles truffles from what my truffle uh plug says you know grow like a spider web cluster and then form into you know the truffle does the mushroom start the same way as it just like looks like a web or does it have you know more formation yeah so i think that the truffle what how that grows is there's a thing called a sclerotia which is like this hard underground thing that it grows from um I think that that's it. You know what? Maybe I'm just being totally pessimistic and uh, and we'll be able to grow them. You know, who knows? Because like this, all this stuff that I'm looking at right now wasn't growing a hundred years ago. So like cordyceps wasn't being grown, you know? So maybe there is a, maybe there is a chance for it. And I think that there's probably a lot of investment going for it. So who knows? Maybe I'm going to get proven wrong. <laughs> First American truffle. Well, we're excited. <laughs> but I don't think one square foot will work. <laughs> it, it's okay. I have my. You know, take a bite out of it. I needed to ask because I know I know you've done your research and at least much much more than I have uh, for sure on, <laughs> on that topic of mushrooms and how they grow. So really appreciate meeting you, talking to you, getting us through this journey of uh, mushrooms, and uh, we'll be as we always have uh, been. Super fans, giving you likes, comments, and love. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good Thank night, you. Joe. Good night.